0: Hey guys, welcome back to Finding Nicholas. We are on the penultimate episode of the season, which means it is the next to last. Um, Have a special guest uh, next week. Uh, But again, for now, it is me doing part two of last week's episode of traveling, traveling the world and how that's changed me. Uh, Like I said, it's changed me a lot. So much that I wanted to share uh, a few more stories, a few more insights, um, talk about traveling and how much that's changed me, how much I've learned and all those insights I've gained uh, through immersing myself in different cultures, different ways of life. Uh, yeah, it's been totally enriching. And so I actually hit the pause button a second ago. So I forgot what I said earlier and I was just trying to go back through it. Uh, so. I think the way I want to start this off is I want to talk about when, let's say leaving Japan, like that time period, as we, as we kind of move forward, I, I remember I was dating this girl in Japan and, uh, or no, it wasn't even that really. I went on a date. Uh, I went on a a single date, uh, with this, with this girl and, she she showed me, like, the nice restaurants. We had a bit to eat. Uh, I went to an izakaya and um, tried all these different foods uh, native to Japan. Uh, so she was very much my tour guide and, and give me the scoop on what's what and where to go. And um, so I, I certainly appreciated that throughout the evening. And we ended up near a bridge, I think. Uh, like, it was dark by this point late in the evening and we kind of took this side road and it ended up near this uh, this wall and ended up being by a river. And we went to this wall and we climbed up. We climbed up, looked over and it was so dark outside that we couldn't even see the river really. You mostly heard it more than you could see it. But the moon was, you know, glancing off the water and it was kind of, I don't, think, you know, romantic. So, we're sitting there quietly. She turns to me and says, "You know, hey Nick, um, I noticed that, you know, you were looking at some different women throughout the evening, and, you know, kind of essentially what's going on with that." And so she comes down to this question, and she says, "Nick, do you think there are ugly people in the world?" <laughs> I, I mean how do you answer that at, you know, 23, 24 years old? Basically, I told her, yes. You know, I didn't say it in such a way that it was ugly. Like, like it was mean-spirited or anything like that. You know, I was like, you know, yeah, there are people who may be less attractive than others and, you know, may not have the features and and the like. And she goes, hmm. And then just stares at me like dead stares at me and it's silence and all you hear is like in the distance some people here and there this low hum of of talking and the river going by. I knew what I should have said. You know, I, I felt like I knew the answer she wanted me to give but I gave mine which was true and authentic and was, all, you know, <clears throat> genuinely me. But... <laughs> She, she looks at me, finally, after you know, staring a hole, you know, off into the distance, then at me. She says, Nick, there are no ugly people in the world. And I was floored. I mean, I. it was something crazy enough that I'd never thought of. I had never really considered what that view Meant for me, or shaped how I looked at people, situations. Imagine somebody asking you, you know, are there ugly people in the world? And clearly, your mind—I think my mind—goes to to movies. They don't put ugly people in movies, really. They don't put ugly people on magazine covers. Statistically speaking, attractive, good-looking people get higher salaries and and better opportunities and, you know, ultimately live in better neighborhoods on and on and on. And so I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, there, there are ugly people, but I never considered what that really meant. Like if there are ugly people, that means I think there are ugly people and that by proxy, you know, in turn, I, maybe I agree that, you know when i when, when when i would see a person who i thought was unattractive i thought they were less intelligent or not as fun or funny and charismatic that do you want to be seen with this person or not or do you want to date this person publicly or not and all that implicit bias that you that you if you harbor such a thought that means you're going out and you're acting on that right whether you're aware of it or not and so by me admitting uh, to her and then kind of admitting to myself that I thought they were ugly people, um, I, I stripped people of their humanity. I, uh, You know, there's so many awesome things about a person. Their personality, their style, the way that they speak. It, are they patient? Are they kind? Are they supportive? tons of you know redeeming factors that human beings have just naturally just being alive you know and basically i reduced someone and all their genius and brilliance and creativity and kindness and candor i reduced it to aesthetics only that this person is good looking or not this person you know, as a result is worthy of my time or not. All off looks. And looks don't really tell you anything. You know, when you think about it, looks don't really say a whole lot other than you find this person, you know, physically appealing. That's it. You know, uh, good looks can't hold you at night. Good looks can't speak a word of confidence in your ear. Uh, Good looks aren't going to go the extra mile for you when you're down and out or when you're building a business or something like that. And that was something that came uh, into the picture through that moment and, and has uh, left an indelible mark on me. And so, you know, I kind of smiled back at her and it's kind of sheepish, but I felt low. I felt real low. And I was like, dang, Nick, you know, what a jerk. And so, yeah, that's how that ended. So there were a lot of moments kind of like that when I lived in Japan. and But when I was leaving, I... I was leaving Kawasaki High School, and I and I loved the people I work with, and I loved, uh, you know, all these different people, you know, Takashi Sensei, Honda Sensei, you know, the, the, you know, I Sensei. They they. I had a, I think a greater time because of them, you know, people who went out of their way to make sure I had a good time. And that things were okay, and that I was getting along well uh, in the country, and in my city, and in my job. I needed that, and, you know, because you know it was new to me, the whole the whole thing, you know, moving to Japan, doing this job, learning a new language, ad infinitum. It, all of it was, you know, challenging to various degrees. And so, but the kids were super special, very loving, very friendly, uh, very open-minded. Uh, just had so much fun teaching them and learning from them. And so I remember leaving the school and I gave a speech in Japanese and I and I cried during the speech. And then it was my last day. They asked me to sit in the teacher's room for a little bit longer. And when I walked out, they had like a big ceremony and everything for me. And then people were lined up down the, the quarters and down the street. Um, and when I drove out, I had I had tears in my eyes and I could barely see and the kids chased after my car down the road and uh, just ugly, <laughs> ugly ugly face, ugly tears. You know, I could barely keep my eyes open and then, you know, it was all blurred as I was trying to get down the road. But I really appreciated a culture that put other people first, it seemed. I I'd never known a, a group of people or a society that praised the individual for doing, I won't say regular things, but being consistent even in doing regular things. They they have this thing like, you know, gamansutur, you know, you know, you just you see it through that type of mentality or gambare, you know, do your best. And there's this fight. Uh, I think in the Japanese people that that I really came to know and love, and 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 a kindness, uh, a selflessness that, you know, one way or the other, if if they really meant it or not, or just felt felt compelled because it's the way their societies run, and, and obviously there are a lot of people who felt that pressure as well, uh, with that with that sense of duty and unity. But it affected me in, in a profound way. Uh, It just allowed me to not think so much about the returns on on what I need and what I'm invested in and and the people I'm invested in. And it it took everything away from a transactional state. You you know, in America, I feel like sometimes, you know, everything is a transaction. You know, quid pro quo, I do this, you you, you give me that, or that kind of dynamic, just it's trading and bartering and negotiating. And even down to your principles, your core principles. You know, I I don't think you should be bartering and negotiating your beliefs. But I think that sense of morality here is warped in this country. Um, I give you an example. I give I give you a real example where where we have normalized certain behaviors and 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 actions and atrocities. Like I remember when Sandy Hook happened. And I think that was the the, the shooting in, is it Connecticut? I'm sorry if it's not, but but it was Sandy Hook massacre, the the one with the elementary schoolers, and because of the time difference, you know, it, I just discovered that it happened uh, in the morning. And so I I drove to the school, and when I get inside, uh, all my students and the faculty they look very concerned, and they're like, Nick, are you okay? Are are you are you fine? Are, are and I was like, um, yeah, I'm cool. You know, what, what's the deal? And they were, they said there was a shooting in your country. In my mind, I, I, that didn't phase me. I mean, we have shootings all the time you know, America loves guns. And so I, I hadn't actually, I hadn't made any overt motions or anything like that. I just, in my head was like, yeah, know, okay. And they said it was a school shooting. And I said, Oh, and they said it was elementary school, which at that point I was like, now okay, that's different. It's not a middle school or especially a high school, elementary school. That's new. And then they said the number was like, I don't think like, you know, 22 people total, you know, it was like 18 children, maybe. And like four, Adults or three adults, whatever that number was, I'm sorry, I, I should have probably written that down before this. But, and I'm kind of like, oh my God, in my head. But I'm still not completely surprised. I'm like, I'm not unable to not work or function. But these kids were crying. The adults and the, and the faculty members were crying, were dead in tears. This wasn't their country. They didn't go to school there. Don't know anybody over there. And were concerned for me and my well-being. And here I was from the place, from the United States. And I felt like almost nothing. And I think it speaks to where we've normalized certain tragedies and uh, loopholes in the law and and just the language of the law rather than focusing on the spirit of the law. People are like, you know, "I I don't want my guns taken. I'm not gonna get all into that, but it's just a place where we equivocate and justify some of anything. And then you realize that in Japan, guns are banned and they don't have this problem. And I guess in some ways could retain a sense of humanity, a greater humanity, just by limited violence in that way or something. I hope, you, I hope you guys can see where I'm going. I'm not saying there's not violence anywhere else in the world or that, you know, one particular country or, or a particular crime is better than another, you know, a stabbing versus a shooting versus a, a pipe bomb, I don't know. But the prevalence uh, of such um crimes, unspeakable atrocities. It, I think it does say something. I'm not going to say what I think it says here, but I hope you can make that connection and realize that the world is a big place and that some things that you may find normal in your country may not be normal in the world at large. And so, yeah, yeah, but I love I the kids. Going back to Kawasaki, I love those kids. And... it it changed the constitution of my soul. It made me softer, wiser, more open, less judgmental. And so let's carry on. So I'm going home to the United States after after leaving this job and I stop in Italy. And I'm hanging out with uh, my friend Miriam, who I just met maybe like, you know, a few months ago in Thailand. Awesome story there. But ended up, reaching out to her, saying, hey, Miriam, um, I actually am traveling to Italy. I hope uh, you're doing well. I'm going to Rome. Do you know a place where I can stay in Rome? Anything I should see and do? You know, just kind of help me out with, with some stuff. And she says, oh, well, Nick, I, I live in Rome. Come stay with me. And I was like, what? You know, because, I one, I wasn't going to have to pay uh for a hotel and accommodations. Then I kind of had a built-in tour guide. And then this was like someone who was maybe a stranger months ago uh, who was just offering me her place. And so that was a a win in in all regards. And she came and got me from the airport and we rode through Rome at night, which was kind of like awesome. And, you know, the cypress trees and all this other stuff, you know, it was was very cool to see, uh, smell the air. You know, all the things you do when a place is new to you. Uh, and that was my first time at that time to Italy, and so, um, so I, I get to her place, and I, I she's working for the first few days. I go off, and and you know see all the places you're supposed to see, like the uh, the gladiator, the the Colosseum, you know where the where the gladiators fought. I was over there in Trevi Fountain and went to. Um, the Vatican, you know, the the Sistine Chapel, did all this stuff. And then on the last day, like the next to last days, I went to like a birthday party uh, for her brother. And we ate some good food, had some good laughs, took some awesome pictures. And in there, there was a day where we had lunch. And here's the point of the story. The the, key story I want to share with you is that uh, we went to, like this Tuscany region. It was a bit of a drive. It was a bit of a drive. Uh, so we left pretty early to get there for lunch. And it, the way it works is, uh, you know, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm like, fully, like, I understand, you know, Italian culture and things of that nature. But we have our aperitif, which is like this little bottle of alcohol or something like that. It's not heavy or anything like that, but it's used to stimulate hunger. So we, we take one of those, and then, like, the light stuff comes out, like the bread and the olive oil, and then, and, and, you know, and the salt or whatever, and you're dipping, and we're having wine. And then I think it's, like, a salad next or, you know, all these courses. So it's, like, one and then two, and then here's, like, the first course and then the second main course. And so what I start to notice is that, in between each of these, it's, it feels like forever, you know, compared to America where they just rush it out to you. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, I felt like there was such like half an hour, 45 minutes in between every single thing coming. And so it's like, maybe we've been there for like four or five hours at this point. I think we're finally finished eating everything and dessert. And it's, it's gotta be around like five hours and the sun is, is starting to set. And it's not quite there, but it's it's, it's starting to go. And uh, Miriam asks for uh, the check. And then it takes like 40 minutes, 35 minutes, something like that for... It's not like I was counting. I'm, I'm eyeballing. I'm spitballing here. But in that range for sure. And I'm going... Holy moly, uh, this is taking forever. And I guess it was showing on my face. Okay, it, it was showing on my face. I didn't notice, but Miriam noticed. And uh, she reaches across the table and puts her hand on my hand. And she looks me in the face and she says, Nicholas, you are so American. And I said, you know, well, what, it, well, what does that mean, uh, Miriam. The, you are so impatient. Relax. Enjoy the scenery. Enjoy the food. I said, but but Miriam, I mean, they're taking forever to do things. You know, what the food is coming out, and then it's forever to the next thing. We just asked for the check, and it's already beyond half an hour. She says, Nicholas, Nicholas, what you don't understand is this. We came out here, and she says, You know, us Italians, Nicholas, we. The f- food is secondary. The conversation and the bonding, the communication is first. You know, we're here to eat, but yes, but the first thing we're here is to fellowship, is to spend time with each other, to know and love and grow with each other. And the food is just the way of bringing us to this space space to do that. Again, one of those paradigm shifting moments in my life where I was like, man, how have I been living in such a rushed state and a state of just like urgency sort of where, you know, I, in the States, you're kind of used to someone putting the check down while you're still eating. You know, they come by and they said, hey, when you're ready. And then there's a check on the corner of the table. Or somebody keeps popping up, and they're going, "Would you, would you care for something else? Would you care for a dessert? Would you care for this?" And they're kind of pushing you through that that sales phase, right? And but you but you feel kind of rushed sometimes, and feel kind of hurried. Whereas I think in Italy, you know, at that particular experience at that time, which is, you know, if you've ever been to a lot of Europe, uh, a lot of things are, are, are generally. I think in a restaurant situation of a, a bit slower, some places more than others for sure. Uh, but they never asked us what what we wanted to like, oh, do you want this? Do you want that? Keep checking on us. It was almost like the exact opposite where it was like, hey, would you please come check on us? You know, could you please, you know, bring more wine? We've been looking for you for 25 minutes. And so that was different for me and I had to make that adjustment, you know, mentally um, to just maybe process that in a different way, process spending time with each other in a different way and how to be more authentic where I could not only show my mind and where my heart is and where I want it to be, but also live in such a way where people can see the real-time growth and changes in me, you know, as I learned those things. And so that was a, that was a tremendous moment for me, Rome. And so I went back to the United States, uh, became a certified teacher, uh, <clears throat> worked at, at, at a, a small town school for a little while, and then applied for a job in Germany. Got the job in Germany uh, at, at a pretty prestigious boarding school. And I, I'd never been to Germany, except maybe as a kid, wh- which I didn't remember. Um, so as an adult, this was my first experience. Uh, it would be to live, live in Europe, work in Europe, uh, live in Germany, work in Germany. And part of what I was there to do was to be a language and literature professor in the IB, the International Baccalaureate. And I had these roles. I was a, a dorm master of, of about 17 boys, and at one point about 31 boys. Head basketball coach and, like, business supervisor of a, of a student uh, train entertainment, refreshment, business. So let's fast forward. Like It was so great, number one, to be in such an environment where I think there are maybe, you know, probably 60, 70 nationalities represented in this school. So you heard so many different languages, even though the main modes of communication were either in German or English, but there are people, you know, speaking Arabic and Spanish and French and Italian and and like everything that you can imagine. And it was very cool to see how human beings could, you know, so many kids could listen to someone speaking in French but answer them in German and someone understood it in German but translated it for somebody else, you know, in I don't I don't know some any other language right right in Chinese I I just saw it so often and I thought that was really cool to because if you speak more than one language you can now speak to twice as many people right essentially if you learn a third language I mean how much more the world opens up to you and so here I was in that environment and what was particularly challenging was not only you know yeah of teaching kids uh, who whose, you know, language, first language is not English, you know, for many, having to explain things and articulate and highlight and map out stuff and illustrate things for them, you're talking about differentiation. That's one of those buzzwords in in education. And you really had to do that, honestly, you know, because different learning styles, different languages, different cultures, different value systems we're all in your face, and it was a a very it was a great test uh, for me as a teacher. Um, But let me give an example of of a really awesome story. I was coaching uh, basketball, and uh, I've coached basketball before in a head coaching role, and I've coached some men teams, men's teams as well, and I'd won a championship before. So coming to teach these kids, you know, in Europe, the main sport is like soccer or like, or football, you know, all these kids are like super awesome at that. And then there was basketball and you had a handful of kids who were into basketball, you know, they were into it, but not like soccer into it. And so, you know, I'm, uh, a former collegiate athlete, and I, I love to win. You know, I played like three sports in high school. You know, got a region championship. You know, cross country region championship, in basketball. You know, region champions in track and field, state medalist, and so forth. So when I get it, got time to to coach these kids who were all into soccer. It felt like a movie. It felt like a movie, a movie where like the Bad News Bears or Ladybugs, you know, uh, Sandlot, what's that movie uh, with Keanu Reeves, Hardball. It felt like that. And so I, I felt like I had a bunch of kids who were not like insanely talented or athletic, but I had maybe two or three after tryouts Two or three I thought were who had, you know, some pretty good athleticism and coordination for basketball. There were about two others who were just good athletes in general. And then everyone else was like, no, like like it it was so it was so bad. And I I called my dad. I said, Dad, I I don't know what to do with this team. I don't think we can win. Um, It's just going to be a hard season. He's, you know, in in his way, he says, "Well, just you know, do what you can, and you know, stay positive, but do what you can." And so I took my 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 orders, and I was off to do what I could. What made it so interesting was that you had all these nationalities represented on the team: Romanians and Germans. And Austrians and Koreans and Chinese um, uh, athletes, and 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 more, uh, and Russian. And so, it to be able to think quickly in another language, in a game that's high speed, proved to be a considerable challenge. You know, to do it in your own native tongue, where you don't have to think about it, would have proved to be much easier. Like So much easier, but the truth was we didn't really have that luxury, so we had to simplify things. We had to simplify our mode of uh, sp- of speaking and communicating, for example, you know um, if somebody wants to set a screen, you know we we couldn't afford to say, "Hey, set a pick or set a screen or have a different name. Two or three different names for everything because that was, you know, an encumbrance on the athletes. Oh, I have to learn the two or three versions of this word and that word and that word just to play the game. Uh, so we simplified things and we practiced it till we were like blue in the face, till we were tired, till our feet hurt. But when we got to the end of the season, it was second nature. You know, we learned to communicate in a way that became our team, our team's way of communicating. And so we went to Denmark, to Hairless Home. We won the championship. So awesome. We went undefeated. And I I just, it was one of the proudest moments of my life because here was a team I, I didn't really think uh, had a chance to win it all at the beginning of the season. But is a testament to how hard they worked. Uh, the focus that they maintain, the positivity and the individual leaders throughout the the team. And so what I want to highlight here is in terms of this episode is about authentic global communication. Sometimes you can bring a bunch of diverse people and groups and entities into a place where it seems like getting on one accord is going to prove to be impossible but when you work at it long enough and you simplify things and you explain why things are the way that they are it creates a sense of community where that community has a language and we've we've seen that through different you know economic levels where where the poor tend to speak a certain way and the middle class and the rich have a different tongue. We've seen the difference within ethnic groups where there are certain words that are okay for some people to use and others not. And in the workplace, if you're in a particular industry, there's a certain jargon that you use that makes sense for the tech world, that makes sense for healthcare and and, and the medical field and in the sports world and so on and so forth. It's about getting to a place where the language you're using makes sense to everyone. And when you travel abroad and you really spend some time in other places, I think one of the chief advantages and takeaways is that you are able to communicate at this macro, at this broad level where you can kind of move in and out of these different groups with ease. It's, it's like someone who, you know, was poor, but became rich and they spent the majority of their life poor, but they're newly rich so while they have money and they're floating around in these different high powered circles, they actually feel more comfortable with people who are broke and can easily, you know, drop down to their old neighborhood and and, and, and to a different life and, and fit right in, boom, no effort, no problem at all. Traveling has a way of doing that, not just with language. We're talking about communicating, but, there's a certain communication that comes with being like being in a certain place is a means of communication. Like if I, if you see me in a certain building, you're going to see, you're going to think certain things. If you see me in a particular car, you're going to think certain things. If you see me hanging around with certain people, you're gonna think certain things. And that's natural. If I hang around a bunch of wrestlers, it's safe to assume that other people might assume I too am a wrestler. If I hang around a lot of wealthy people and, and people who you know, are very public figures and so forth, it's only natural that people think I am of the same feather. Globally, as a global citizen, because of my experiences, you can set me down in Italy or France or Germany or Dubai or Korea or Japan or Peru or Colombia or Canada or Mexico, and I feel at home. And there's something in me that people pick up on it and know that, I am also part of them. But it's only because I've, I've had these experiences that have allowed me to grow in that capacity, to expand my, my worldviews, to expand my palate when it comes to foods, where I, I don't freak out if somebody asks me, Nick, do you want to have sushi? I'm not, I'm not going, oh, it's it's raw fish. I can't do it or if I go to Slovenia and there's a horse burger restaurant and, oh, I, I can't do horse. Oh, I, I saw black stallion. <laughs> it Because I've tried those things and because I've been in those places, I, I'm not easily offended. I, I'm not easily moved and influenced one way or the other. I'm just tolerant, I guess, and, and accepting of all that I see. And so, It's funny because, you know, people, there's a quote by like, I think, Ernest Hemingway or something like that, where, or maybe Dickens, I don't know. But the more you travel, paraphrasing, the more you travel, it dispels stereotypes and racism and bigotry. That's what travel does for you. It introduces you to the 7.8 billion other people on the planet and the ways of life and the modes of thinking to where it erodes this buildup, this muck that you've allowed to grow on you by being idle, by being stationary. When you never leave where you are, it's kind of like this fungus grows over you, right? This moss grows over you, Uh, but the more that you move, Uh, It it doesn't allow that, that those things to stick to you. And what I think, you know, I think what I'm trying to say there is we've seen, particularly in America of late, that that new ways of thinking aren't really accepted or acceptable on either side, on either side, whether you're Democrat, you know, Republican, Libertarian, I, I don't care. People are so entrenched in their way of thinking that they can't possibly see another side. They don't spend time on the other side. And so there's no way of knowing. How can you fight racism when the people or the the group who is responsible for promoting a system of discrimination are are not spending time with the people they're oppressing, where they only know them through books and television and this warped media and Instagram and Twitter. I don't know, but let's let's kind of round this thing out. It, global authentic communication. Here's what it is. Here's what it is to me. I've taken my friends to different countries. I've traveled with my sister to different countries. We've, we've had brilliant times, amazing times. We've endured challenges and sticky situations. Um, we've lived in YOLO'd to the max. And those are absolutely amazing and unforgettable memories that we, that we created. But in the process of progress, that at some point you're going to revert to a lesser form. You know, you're going to get ahead and say, oh, I understand everything that's going on here. And look at that. Look, you can do this and you can do that. Wow. And the world's going to open up to you. But in the process of trying to adapt to that and accept that, there is going to be a kind of of a pushback is what I'm I'm trying to say. That you're going to say, if if you've always believed there's only one God, there's only one god and then you go around the world and somebody says there are 50 gods, there are 10 gods, there are 20 gods, there are two gods. before you can really accept that your beliefs will be challenged. and then you're going to go, well, well there's not, there's not 50. There's just one and you know you're stupid for thinking there's 50. and it's at, at some place if you've traveled long enough, you stop doing that. You stop picking apart everyone's beliefs and you stop stretching one belief over everything that they say or think. That because they said they believe in 50 gods, now you've invalidated everything else they have to say after that moment. If they say one plus one is two, you're like, no, because you said there's 50 gods, can't be right either. Your whole sense of reality is suspect. I don't believe you. And people have to get over that. There there is a language out here that it reacts to authentic people. The world is the world. And And it tries to speak to you in the way the, in only the way the world can the world is full of spiritual beings living a physical fleshly existence and its options to communicate to you are through nature through circumstances and through language that's it you know if the world wants to talk to you it's going to send you someone to come speak to you. And there's something called confirmation in the Bible, where, you know, sometimes you were you looking for some answer in life and somebody says something that really resonates with you. And you're like, oh, man, yeah, that, ooh, that's me. Man, I feel like somebody's talking directly to me. And then a day later, hours later, minutes later, a completely different person, a stranger even. Says something very similar to you. And you're thinking, why is everybody trying to say this to me? What is going on? That's confirmation. And the world does this a lot more than you think. It's not just serendipity where it's. You want to do and become and see things and have things. And the world is constantly telling you that you can. Or can't. Or that it's right now or that it's later. And we miss that because we're holding on to who we think we are, what we've been through, and what our story means to us. And hearing other stories, it changes the way you look at your story. Seeing the way other people live and how they handle the exact same things you, you've you been through. Because, like I said, the world is the world. 7.8 billion people, but we all love to sing Love, dance, eat, sleep. We feel good when we're doing good work and meaningful work. That's the same everywhere as a human being. And so when you get to a place where you realize that, wow, this person went through the exact same thing I did, but here's how they handled it. It loosens the chains that you put on yourself, all the chains that we have in our minds, the chains that we've placed on ourselves. We're really the only ones holding ourselves back. And so the question becomes then, how do we communicate authentically in the world? How do we bring our best selves to every interaction? And what that means is step one, is you have to be present. You have to be tapped in to the right now. You have to let go of what was and what might be to grab hold of the power that is available to you in the now. You can't change the past, but you can alter the future by focusing on the now. I know that sounds cliche, and simple, but it is cliche and it is simple. The, the next step after you know, gaining this, this this awareness, you have to allow yourself to be molded. You have to think of yourself as silly putty and allow people to press on you. Allow situations to crush you Allow people to split you apart sometimes and then let the world push you back together to make you into a new thing. Because travel makes you into something new if you let it. But we are geared towards progress. That is, you know, that that chemical, you know, dopamine. Yeah, that molecule, it, It's it's all about anticipation and expectation and reaching for the unknown we get excited by the unknown literally i'm reading this book where there's a difference between when you look down and when you look up because when you look down all those things are available to you in the present and so you have something called like the parapersonal and those are things that you can reach like right in front of you without moving okay and then you have this extra personal side where it's away from you and then your brain has to figure out how do I go get it what are the steps I've got to it has to there's some planning that has to take place in order to procure or to, to 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 get that and so Traveling makes you live in this kind of extra personal world where you have to figure things out. And that dopamine release that's so sweet comes in to to, to fill us up, right? In short, the changes we want to see in ourselves, the changes we want to see in the world, the happiness we wish to enjoy, the price you pay is being changed, losing your old self in favor of this new person you wish to be. But it comes at the price of challenges. Travel is challenge. Even if it's not a physical one, it may challenge your worldview. And we, as we know, the, the, the body follows the mind. And so when you, when, you, when you decide in your mind that this is where you want to be, this is what you want to go, and where, which, what, these are the things you want to do, have on and on and on, it sets out a course and a destination that is ahead of you, which pulls you like gravity towards it but you can only get there by leaving your spot I can't get to the Chick-fil-a down the street without leaving where I am and the language of the world constantly asks you to leave to leave your old thoughts to leave uh, maybe your hometown and so on and so forth If you can listen to yourself and follow that pull without asking too many questions, without judging it too hard, the language can, the world can speak to you. It can use people and love and animals and anything it has access to, to shape you into who you're trying to be. It's an emotional language. It's a cognitive language language. It's a hopeful and optimistic language. But it is not a language that is without setbacks or disappointments or heartache and heartbreak and suffering. It, it can be frustrating to adapt to a new society, to accept new ways of thinking, to live with someone who does not look like you. But the way you become successful in the workplace the same way you find success on on a team, any kind of team, the way you find success in a relationship, it's about communicating with the language of the world and not necessarily the language that you think, English and French and Spanish and whatever, That, that, that could always change. But underneath it all, the real language that is governing this planet and beyond in the solar system. There is a collective consciousness that is using us to serve others. And so when you travel, travel with the mind to serve. Travel with the, this mind of pride and dignity and and, and and show people where you come from. Show, show them the best of what you have to offer. And when they're in your home, give them the best of what you have to offer. This is, this is the language. This is global, authentic communication. It's not listening to what people are saying, it's the spirit behind it. It's not the face that they're showing you, it's the face that they're hiding. It's not the face you're showing, but the one that you're hiding. And we hide behind clothes and and, and materialism. We hide behind other people's thoughts and their bunny ears wisdom. And travel makes you check all that. It makes you constantly compare and consider what is real. And the truth is real as anything you want it to be, but only if you understand the principles of how the world works. There are certain principles in the world where it works the way it works. Gravity is what it is. You jump off this building right now, splat, like, like that, you can't change that. Truth isn't gonna change. Patience, kindness, all of these things that people mentioned thousands of years ago as being you know, ver- these amazing virtues, still apply. But if you can stay firmly rooted in that and change who you are and who you want to be along those lines and, and, and do it with a mind of service, you will unlock this other language and become bilingual, trilingual, and so on. Because you'll be able to speak with anyone and go anywhere to be able to partake of all these different foods and experiences and birthday parties and get to stay in people's houses and go cry at schools when you leave them and people leave you notes and write you on Facebook ten years later. That's what happens when when you speak with a heart, when you speak with intention, when you when you speak with a a servant's heart. So yeah, this is authentic communication. It works globally. A smile is international. A smile works everywhere. A visa is accepted everywhere. Um, listening. Is accepted everywhere. I can tell you, no matter where you're going to go, listening is appreciated. Okay, saying what you mean. Right? Saying what you mean is appreciated everywhere. It might be different on how you have to do that. Okay. how how you get that across to people. But that is still the truth of it. And you can find yourself more nuanced and and, and capable in any situation the more you put yourself in diverse situations. And travel, to me, is the number one way to broaden your horizons, to expand your network, to show you a life... Of not just what is, but what could be. And that it still can be, no matter what age you are. Folks, this has been Finding Nicholas. I thank you for taking time out to listen to me. Please follow me on Instagram, at teacherinyourpocket. Uh, please be sure to share this, to comment, rate, subscribe. Anything you can do with this would be appreciated. Go to my website. Book me. Uh, go to my YouTube, watch my motivational videos, do all that, you know, get sucked into my, my ecosystem and spend some time with me. But for now, I'm gone. Peace.